I just worry in some respects that we don't see enough change because the overwhelm doesn't end in venues. It goes beyond venues and that goes into senior executives and such like. And a lot of my business comes from dealing with people in central office who are overwhelmed, don't have enough people, spend too much time on planes, don't eat properly, can't get through the to-do lists and that transcends down. And I think so many times I hear about waiters and chefs and not getting work-life balance and, and being under pressure. We shouldn't forget the guys who were the guys who were setting the culture at the top because nine times out of 10, they're as equally overwhelmed, as equally under pressure, as equally dealing with short-staffed. So I think as an industry, we have to look top down, bottom up, and we need to start having some serious change in there. The Burnt Chef project is proudly sponsored by Lamb Weston, a leading provider of innovative, high-quality potato products created for chefs to help operators thrive both today and tomorrow. Working carefully with sustainably-minded farmers and growers, Lamb Weston provides potato solutions for every type of kitchen, from premium British chips and fries to potato shapes, wedges, and mash. To find out more, Head to lambweston.eu or search your partner in potatoes. Okay, so this week's episode is going to be a little bit different to normal. I am joined not just by one guest. I have four guests. I had to count then. <laughs> I was looking at the screen going, okay. Four incredible hospitality leaders from around the globe who are going to be joining me in discussion points, specifically looking at some of the questions and the comments that we hear quite frequently on our social channels and just putting the world to rights when it comes down to leadership, culture, productivity, mental health, and so much more. So I'm going to go around the room the virtual room that we have here from all parts of the globe and just ask one at a time if you could introduce yourself. So Michelle, ladies first, could you just introduce yourself, who you are and what you do? Hello, I am Michelle Moreno from QAB Leadership and I help companies work with their teams to unleash all the potentials for them personally, to teams and to the company itself. And my goal is, you know, the most meaningful way to lead is to help others lead, specifically in hospitality that I love. That's me. Michelle, how long have you been in hospitality for? Oh, I have to add up my age then. Uh, 25 years this year, 25 years, yeah. Any happy returns? Thank you very much. It's been brilliant. Good, thank you. Scott. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I am Scott. I am the founder of Odin Hospitality. We work with hoteliers, founders to help them think differently to grow their business. So we go into operations, we analyze where there's opportunity to grow, and then we help them through the journey over a six to nine month basis after that as well. I am with Michelle on this one. I am this month, 25 years ago, I first was shaking doing silver service waiting at the Queen's Hotel in Leeds. That shows my age a little bit, but 25 years this September. Get out of here, the two of you, you're embellishing the truth. There's no way you've got 25 years of hospitality experience in you. Can I just say, you said that after Scott, not after me, though. <laughs> just said to Scott. Well, to be fair, you, you talk about who I'm looking at. We made it. <laughs> we made it. Ah, Lara, late to the party, but still very, very cool. welcome. We're doing introductions, Lara, so we'll go with Jim. So, Jim, if you can introduce yourself, please, fella. 
Yeah. Hi, Chris. Hi, everybody. My name is Jim Taylor. I'm the founder of Benchmark 60. We're a company, an agency based in Canada. So I think I'm the only one on this side of the, the Atlantic, but we work and partner with hospitality companies to help them understand how things like productivity and employee workload affect team well-being, burnout, mental health, retention, employee retention, and ultimately the business model. And nice. proud Bird Chef Project Ambassador. Yeah, thank you. I was waiting to hear that from Scott. He left it out, didn't he? He, he left it out. <laughs> I did leave that out. Not usually, but I did well, this time. That hurts me. Yeah, it's especially after our TV appearance recently, Scott, as well, hey? Yeah, exactly, which Michelle is very jealous about. But um, I was literally yeah. hunting him down on it, like on WhatsApp and Insta, going, what's going on? And I sort of pieced it together by seeing the Burnt Chef's Instagram, you know? So sounds exciting. It's very exciting. And a couple of those individuals who are starring in that film and the series hopefully will make appearances with Burnt Chef garments on, on national television in the UK. So that's pretty cool if it comes off. Who knows? And Lara, last but not Hello. least. Thank you guys for your patience. Not very good with devices. No, it's fine. Lara, can you just tell the listeners who you are and, and sort of how you come to this wonderful world of hospitality? Lara and I'm the founder and head chef of Euphoria, which is a catering company where we do bespoke events and we do every two, two months we host immersive dining events. For me, my concept is I'm on a mission to release my guest in a child. And I believe, you know, I've worked in a lot of Michelin star restaurants where it felt like they were lacking the art of play. So yeah. Yeah, I became an ambassador for Chris, part of the Burn Chef Project family. Really cherish what he does and the purpose that to change the industry. Lovely. Thank you. And I, from a personal note, I've had the pleasure of spending time with every single one of you. And it's pretty epic. It's really cool that there are so many like-minded individuals in this space who are all rallying towards the same goal and passionate, driven individuals. And I... I feel like we should do more of that as well so let's get it in the diary and that includes you jim as well i think there's opportunities to come over to our gala in march come over to london for a week we we'll try and get some sponsorship yeah. get the flights covered and come be part of that that'll be class right well and this is recorded too so that's now on record that's perfect that's how i work if i say it's a legal loud, contract it happens speak it into yeah. existence Exactly. I have said, therefore it shall exist. So guys, we're going to go through a couple of questions today, just start to tackle some of the things that we hear quite frequently within hospitality through our social channels and through conversations that we've had. And I'd like all of you to take your view and to give a little bit of insight on these particular comments and just see what we can do in terms of trying to lead a way forward. I'm going to start actually with a comment that you'll all have a piece of experience on or a specific viewpoint. It's from a previous podcast guest, Georges Fenson, who is a sports performance psychologist who has worked with Olympic gymnasts and other people in the past. But more recently, he's transitioned into Michelin star restaurants and working on a sports performance psychology basis with Michelin star restaurants. And he writes, pushing yourself all the time to the max isn't sustainable. In my experience, restaurant staff often lack sufficient coping skills to deal with the demands of the job. Similarly, they often neglect recovery like sleep, nutrition. In total, that's a recipe for disaster. So 
what do we think to that? Do we think that Joao's right in terms of we are lacking sufficient coping skills and that the demands of the industry don't need to change? In fact, it's individuals potentially that need to build their resilience. What are our thoughts? Michelle? I have a real issue with the word resilience because I think it gets overused and we've romanticised what we thought we were resilient with. So to answer your question, I think he's correct. And I think if we want to healthily move forward, it's not even just about attracting people into our industry. It's about getting people to sustain a healthy life within the industry and attract people that back who have left the industry. So we say that previously people were resilient. We know that it really isn't true because of the mental health issues, because of people left, because of the addiction issues we have. So people were just getting by and some people survived it and some people didn't. And so I think there needs to be a, I always offer the word of resourcefulness. So let's replace the word of resilience with resourcefulness and let's come up with new ways, learn from wisdom of what did work. The What he said about that balance, that sleep, that nutrition, that understanding back to how operators will work, how do rotors work, when do people need two days off together, the parts that are going to give people the space to take the rest they need to be able to cope. And then I think it's like a battery, isn't it? You've got to recharge to be able to go fully on. So if we don't give the space to recharge, then we can't go at it with the energy and the passion that we want to um, when we need the 100%. So I'm with him, yes, from me. Use a new word, lose resilience. Absolutely. I always say it's a bit like I'm learning what you've learned, isn't it? You know, a lot of these old school chefs, you know, it's like having parents, they got trained like that. So this is what they're going to, how they're going to train the staff. But this is when the new generation sort of is coming in and really unlearning what we've learned before, the old school ways and how we're going to integrate the balance and the well-being that we deserve. Chefs, it's a domino. It's just going to be a huge turnover. Yeah, Chris, we spent a lot of time in the discussion about work-life balance and how there's so, I mean, most companies we find that we speak to are spending some, some of them spending a ton of time, but all of them are spending some time talking about this concept of work-life balance and whether it's trying to find ways to do remote work or the hybrid model or whatever you want to call it. But what we don't find is very many companies that are focused on the work part. They're all focused on the life part. They're trying to add vacation time or new benefits or compensation or different things to try to focus on the life piece. But you know, we keep having the conversation that if the work part doesn't change, the demand, the workload, all of those types of things, then the burnout and the need to be resilient isn't going to go away. So I think, you know, I definitely agree with some of those comments that this, there definitely needs to be some shift in the industry here. And I, and I think we're starting to see it a little bit, but there's a lot more to do. Yeah, I mean, I guess I've spent some time with Jean on a call and he's a fascinating guy who has a really interesting perspective in terms of how he looks at sports and hospitality together i just worry in some respects that we don't see enough change because the overwhelm doesn't end in venues it goes beyond venues and that goes into senior executives and such like and a lot of my business comes from dealing with people in central office who are overwhelmed don't have enough people spend too much time on planes don't eat properly can't get through the to-do lists and that transcends down. And I think so many times 
I hear about waiters and chefs and not getting work-life balance and and being under pressure. We shouldn't forget the guys who are the guys who are setting the culture at the top because nine times out of ten, they're as equally overwhelmed, as equally under pressure, as equally dealing with short-staffed. So I think as an industry, we have to look top down, bottom up, and we need to start having some serious change in there. Do we impact how people eat? Yes, we do. We don't give people good enough staff food do people get enough water in businesses no they don't and we look at things where we say water is the fruit of life and it should be something that no one takes for granted hospitality we don't give people proper chilled fresh clean water all the time and i think you know we need to stop thinking about giving people extra days holidays and and that type of thing and start looking at the staff canteen every day start looking at whether people drink fresh water that's chilled that's filtered every day because those are the things that are going to keep them fueled because the holidays don't i'm working with some clients at the minute they give people 33 days holiday it's great but it puts the team under pressure because they always got too many people on holiday and they can't find people to fill the gaps so actually what they think was going to be a positive has actually turned into something that impacts their leaders because the cat cover shifts or they're having to decline holidays, or they're having to pull people off holidays. So before we start looking at some of the fancy bits, we have to get the basics right. Isn't that interesting, though? I mean, that point there about actually giving people that time off. We've got a number of comments here about you know not having time off to be able to recoup and to rest and spend time with family. Yet, in essence, there's nothing wrong with having those three days holiday. The issue comes is where what Michelle was saying, there's a lack of resource that actually... The business isn't at the stage where it can offer that until such time as it employs additional resource to be able to cover those labor demands, right? It's all very well and good trying to create that culture of we value your time off, et cetera. But you're doing more damage than good if you then pull that away from people and then you're having to change that, right? Yeah, 100%. I, I mean, me and Michelle were having this conversation a few weeks ago, and you know there's the Hertzberg's theory of what's negotiable, non-negotiable about dealing with employees. And I actually think when you look at what he wrote on the non-negotiable list, it's almost now, uh, sorry, on the negotiable list, it's almost now non-negotiable because people are expecting more. That sounds really bad to say people expect more, but they're expecting what we should be giving anyway. And I think there's a lot more things going on to that non-negotiable list now that people are looking for in the people that they work and i've said it before that we're in a flipped economy we're not in an economy now where the employer has the say of what happens it's a two-way street and we have to understand as leaders of the of the industry now that we have to start looking at this as a two-way relationship and start looking at how we can deliver as much for them as they do for us Otherwise, how can we expect them to do the the delivery bit? And you know, to share another example, we're working with a with a business who has a supervisor who's probably you know a few months off being promoted, not quite there, and someone was brought in in the position above, and no conversations had taken place with her to say we want to get you on a journey. You can get there. You're just not quite ready yet, but we're going to invest in you. Uh, that person has resigned now, and the conversations were well. She just sent an email. She did, they didn't. She didn't come and speak to us. How dare she? It was almost like she'd well, whatever. What say? But my response back to them was, well, you didn't have the courtesy to sit down with her and say, this is why it's happening. This is what we're going to do about it. So how can you expect that respect back? And I think that's some of the mindsets that we've got to start looking at now in terms of going. We're not in a 
place in the economy and in a place in the talent pool where we can be that relaxed about how we treat people because we need to start treating people properly. Chris, I think back to my first bartending job. In order to get promoted into becoming a bartender from being an assistant was, I remember my general manager said to me, he goes, the only shift I can give you is the Saturday open to close shift. I was scheduled from from 9 a.m. to 3 a.m. That was my shift. And he goes, if you don't want to take that shift, that's fine. There's someone else who would like to be a bartender that will take that shift. And so, I mean, that was for one. I mean, that's probably legal, at least in Canada. They didn't pay me overtime to do it. They did, you know, all of these things. It's crazy, right? But thinking about, Scott, your comment about the economy, for one, we're in, from an employment or an employee pool perspective. Yeah, the economy is not. But Gen Z also just isn't going to put up with that. There's an opportunity for us as an industry to think, like Scott also was saying, from the top down where we're having good discussion about this. But there's also a push from the bottom where the people who are going to be taking those jobs just aren't willing to deal with the same things, for lack of a different word, that we would have 25 years ago. So there's, that's going to help, I think, to force some change too. I was just going to say, I've just pulled up a quote so from Simon Blake, who's the CEO of MHFA England. And he, he sent an email to me saying that he's really interested in intergenerational shifts in understanding of work and its purpose. He says that the younger generation and the generational contract has been broken. And for the first time since Second World War, this generation will have less than the last. And he's talking about how the mentality and the mindset of individuals from a younger generation perspective is changing coming into the workplaces. And our contract with employers isn't like it was back then where you do the job, you get it done over strenuous conditions. Now people are coming into the workplace expecting something different, and rightly so, right? So I'm sure after you. No, it links into it. I think the question that will help, because the main issue we have of hospitality is we just do things the same way everywhere. Whichever country I've worked in, whichever was the leading language, you can run a restaurant. You know, they all run exactly the same way. And that's the challenge that everybody's all got the same answers. We don't have diversity of thought of how to be able to move forward, to meet people where they are, whatever generation they are. Whenever I go into companies and they're bringing me in as a cost, but, you know, they, they want to see action straight away. And you've got to have this tough conversations. It's a bit like if you st- if you go to the gym once a week for two hours, but you eat five guys for the rest of the week, it's, it doesn't mean anything. And companies think with good intentions that given the extra work time, whatever they've got going on in their cultural department, we're, we're really trying our best. And they are intentionally, though the question has to be for the majority of the time, what is demotivating your team? That's the conversation we were having, Scott. We have to find out what are the demotivators because they will be different for each place. That isn't collective. You know, there will be some generalizations. And until we work out specifically what is demotivating your team and solve them issues, then they will get to the point where they will self-motivate. And whatever the expectation is of them, it's not that people don't want to work hard. They want to work hard and smart with thought, with care. So we have to answer these questions to be able to get this generation. And, you know, we're more, you know, I am of a slightly older age. We're asking questions to ourselves that we never asked when we were younger. So it's as much for me as it is for the 
22-year-old who's wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. Mm-hmm. You know, I want that too. I have the same enthusiasm to want that from our industry. That's such an interesting... So in real time, Scott, yesterday there was a chap, a young chap that was part of our mental health awareness training we were doing in London. And I said to him, look, do you mind being interviewed about how you found the training? And he said, oh, I don't really feel comfortable. I said, why not? He goes, I've been in the industry only four years. I'm 24 years old. I said, okay, well, just tell me anyway. And he said, well, it's strange. He said, because I've come into this industry and I'm doing what I've been told I need to do within a workplace environment. But you've stood there and told me that it doesn't have to be this way and that it can be different. And you could just see his eyes light up. All of a sudden he went, I actually have an opportunity to make a difference and to make a change in the way that things are done. And that you could just feel this heat coming off of him as into going, oh, actually, why are we doing it this way? Like, why can't we do it differently? And that's an exciting little just shift right in front of your eyes there of that person who can make such massive waves in the industry moving forward just from that train of thought. It's cool, right? So off the back of that question, we have one from a chap who is a culinary arts lecturer in Ireland, and he's also a PhD candidate researching chef retention, specifically for chefs. Very similarly to the last question, but on a slightly different element, it does say here, what does the panel think about the idea that resilience is lacking in younger workers? I know you don't like the word resilience, Michelle. Resource is lacking in younger workers and that there is some kind of deficiency in younger generations which require them to toughen up. Isn't it just a simple way of normalizing and justifying and perpetuating stressful and pressurized work environments? Do we think that the younger generation comes in with less resilience or resource than perhaps the older generation? Well, can I chime in on this one? Yeah, go for it, Jim. I think that, I mean, again, Michelle, I think, did a very good job of covering the concept of resiliency and how we need to maybe look at that differently. We see this workload issue come up again and again and again. And quite often we try to connect and relate what that's like to pro sports, This concept that, I mean, probably every rugby team, soccer team, basketball, hockey, pick a pro sport, NFL, whatever it might be, depending on what country you're in, they put load management strategies in place to protect their athletes from burnout and injury. So if we do that same thing in the hospital, if we consider that same concept in the hospitality industry, it's not that the people are less resilient. They're just not interested in trying to grind through that same thing like we were talking about earlier right and we see this all the time in the restaurants that we spend time with the workload levels are just unsustainable really for anybody and i think the there's just more forward thinking about mental health and protecting yourself and you know looking after things and mental fitness and all these different things that people are more aware of now than they were in previous generations that the people that are maybe being called less resilient are just more aware of what's happening to them, right? So I don't necessarily think they're less resilient. I think they're going to be the best thing that ever happens to our industry. Yeah, I think so. But it is, I mean, I suppose I should bring into this from our experience of training catering colleges and working a lot with the younger generation. There is a shift when it comes down to 
yeah, I always use the analogy or I use the experience of when we were younger and before mobile phones, if we wanted to find something out, we would count our change out, wait at the bus stop whilst it was raining, get on the bus, get to the library, write down the book so that we could copy the notes, et cetera, et cetera. And then we would do all the same in reverse to get home. But now we haven't built that that push and pull, that barrier to going, you know, the bus is late or I haven't got the right money or I don't know where the book is. And to having all of these challenges, we haven't really got those same challenges anymore because life is perhaps in and i'm using quote marks here easier how does that play a part do you think we've become too reliant upon technology and there's that well, i think they just, to... they just have options yeah oh well i do agree with chris in terms of the world has moved on yes and so like i always use the same sort of analogy like i had to wait for Saturday mornings, watch Muppet Babies with my brother. I saw my gran on a Sunday. You know, if I wanted, I had to wait till Saturday when my mum took me to town to get something. They don't have a learning through their childhood or they haven't had the learning through their childhood of waiting or finding things out themselves. So I agree with you, though that just means it's changed. And we have to understand that what they need from us is we need to teach them something differently of what they're going to get in a workplace that they wouldn't have got through the development of technology. And I think back to that point as well, in terms of those two things with what the chef lecturer says, I do think we romanticise the past. So there was a, we, we did expect too much, but also I remember when I started getting paid back in the day when I was young, I got paid 3K a year by the company. The rest was paid by Tronk. That was legally allowed. So no manager at my time was under pressure with the P&L on costs. And so when we talk about this resilience as well, the pressure was not the same as it is today anyway. You would know this with productivity. There's more people. Scott, you've talked about this and we're with Jim. You know, we have more people to serve with less people doing it as well and so I think it's not just one thing sadly it's many things that we have to understand has shifted what we're telling ourselves isn't always true there is a truth to it and we need to move it because expectations have changed of this generation and this generation have lived a different life and we need to understand that because they don't know any difference and that's the hardest part of the evolution is there's a lot to take on board for us as leaders so i suppose the question from my side of things on that is what can be done to support the fledgling generation the the future culinary culinary professionals or the operation managers or directors of the hospitality industry what can we do to give them the best start that they need in order to be able to to grow and, and to develop i think we had this conversation the other day is to anyone listening who considers themselves part of the younger generation don't change don't change because you are the most creative generation we've ever had. You're the generation that has the highest standards that's probably been there. So don't change, expect more would be my advice. And I think the people who don't fall in line with that and don't work out how to deal with it are the ones who are going to fall away. And the ones who do are the ones who are going to thrive. I think we now as leaders have to be in a position where if the new generation and I hate calling them that, but if the new generation aren't good with conflicts because they've never had conflict, they've not had to deal with conflicts because of WhatsApp and text. And I used to say an example the other day, Chris, right? Like they don't have to ring up the house phone to a girlfriend hoping that the dad doesn't pick up and put it down as quick as you can and dial on like direct lines so that they don't know which number's called. That doesn't have to happen anymore. So they're not used to that type of environment. 
don't force them to be in that type of environment because they're not used to it. So if you're not prepared to train them, you're not prepared to give them time, you're not prepared to help them build those skills, you can't expect it back. And that's where we've got to use things like tech. We've got to embrace things like productivity that Jim spends his time doing day to day to help them thrive because the game is changing. And that's just what it used to be. When I was growing up, it was 4-4-2. That's all football teams played. Now it's not 4-4-2 anymore. You don't see people hanging in the past. They move with the times. They play with the new guys on the block. And that's what we have to do. And it's us who have to change, not the new generation, because they are they are superstars waiting to happen. I agree. Now, I'm going to put in a brief break whilst we gather our thoughts. And we'll be back in a second. If you're enjoying this week's episode, consider heading over to our website and supporting our ongoing work in destigmatizing mental illness and creating a healthier, happier, and more sustainable industry by purchasing some of our branded merchandise. We have a whole range of t-shirts, hoodies, chef's jackets, well-being journals, plus a whole host more available on Worldwide Dispatch. All funds raised from sales of these items go towards free to access e-learning content as well as providing free support systems and help for those who may be experiencing difficulty with their mental health this comment is about mentioned the public treatment of hospitality workers how we're expecting to stay open so late so they can drink themselves stupid entitlement from public is disgusting the industry has trapped me all i got from it is stress alcohol addiction anxiety loss of friends and a detachment from my family intrusive thoughts and sometimes much worse how do we start to combat the so-called public entitlement issue is this something that we feel as hospitality professionals exist is this a common thing has it become worse since covid what are our thoughts and what do we do about it yeah i believe it's a form of escapism is in it when it comes to addiction when it's in the industry and this Nobody is a tough question, to right? This, one. <laughs> this is a tough one. I'll go with it as a guy who uh, started his career in Leeds and probably had his fair share of this type of thing happening quite often. I worked in a golf resort. We did 156 weddings a year. I reckon we shut the bar early in probably 152 of them. So, yeah, I think, listen, it's you give people alcohol and they change, don't they? It doesn't matter how great your people are on the floor is going to happen and it's just the nature of the beast unfortunately and my only thing on this is as a business you have to take a stance and you have to have a policy and you have to have a a collective understanding of how do you deal with those situations and you have to be very firm with them and if a guest is in there and he's bought a couple of bottles of Dom Perignon and all of a sudden he abuses one of your team he's out right and if that's the policy that's the policy don't bend it because the minute you bend that policy and you allow your team to be abused, you're telling your team that it's okay. And, you know, back to Mm -hmm. all the issues that we we talked about earlier, that's when then the workforce start doubting that your values are what they say they are on the tin, your culture is what they say they are on the tin. And I think the other thing as well, and, you know, going back to the early days in my career and 152 weddings, we shut the bar. It's about giving your leaders the confidence to say it's not okay. And they have to be clear that they can make a judgment call with no retribution and they can do what they think is right. If it's not the right thing, that's a conversation for Monday morning with someone who knows better and can sit there and can coach people through. But 
you know, in those situations, when I was there, I had some amazing bosses who at times said you overreacted and maybe we generalized the common thing that was going on. And they used to sit down and they used to have conversations. But what I always knew was that any decision I made would be backed by the team at the time. And that is super important for me. So will we stop it? Probably not. Is it right? Definitely not. As a business, can we put things in place that at least shows you people you care? Absolutely. I think it's about empowering the team. I was this week at a Michelin restaurant and you'd expect there that maybe people would be slightly better behaved than like a big sessions pub type thing. A young woman had got herself into quite a sticky situation. And so it becomes, and it was dealt with correctly, though it comes a learning curve. Sometimes we haven't empowered and taught the teams of when the warning signs are that get somebody else involved, somebody who can step in, who is more skilled in these situations to make the decisions that Scott's talking about. But if it's never been discussed with them, they think they're doing the right thing by, in a way, putting up with it, which which means the situation can get out of hand. Whereas them knowing as soon as I know something's not right in any situation, it's that psychological safety in all ways, you know, putting your hands up going, this doesn't feel right. And we know that's how we work as a company. And then we do have the value of respect and we genuinely use it as a company because they know that that's what that word means. We can say, I'm not sure about this. So we can preempt it and organize it for it then to go on to a leader who hopefully has the skills to make the right decision for them. And they don't get too deep too soon and don't know how to get out of it creating a bubble, a safe space where your team is comfortable to speak out loud, you know, otherwise that's when they go introvert. And I think, I believe as the leader, you have to be a bit vulnerable yourself to sometimes ask for the help yourself. And this is how you inspire your team as well to, to do so. So that, yeah. 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 And Chris, the interesting thing too about this is that everything about that scenario of let people stay late, let people drink too much, let people, you know, all of that type of thing leading up to mistreating employees. The hospitality industry is a revenue driven industry. It's not a profit driven industry, right? There's always talk of slim margins. It's hard to make money. It's hard to be successful. 80% quota, you know, all of that type of stuff. It's because you know, like we were talking about earlier, and I think, Laura, you were the one that said this, like, we just kind of all learned from the person before us mm-hmm. about how to struggle through and grind and hopefully make some money at the end of the day. So in some ways, although it's not right, you almost can't blame some of the operators or the owners that just are trying to generate as much revenue as they can, because that's how they, in a lot of cases, know how to stay alive, right? And I think that's where the industry is evolving and has opportunity as well you know, definitely agree with all of the comments about supporting people. But part of understanding the business model actually will help to make those decisions. Turning away somebody, even if they bought a $300 bottle of champagne because they're mistreating your people is still far less expensive than the $4,000 it will cost to replace that person when they leave. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And you can see it when you talk to hospitality professionals. It doesn't matter whether you're front of house or back of house. And they'll ask you, "What do, we had it when we were in Toronto, Restaurants Canada, didn't we, Jim? People were asking us these questions like, what should we do if this person does this to me? Or, or whether that's from an employer or mm-hmm. an employee point of view or even from a guest point of view. And you go, well, how does it feel? And they go, it feels wrong. So 
you should say that feels wrong. I'm not willing to accept that. Mm. And you can see this dichotomy, isn't it? It's this, this thought process of going, but we only say yes. We only say yes. We only give customer service, even when that compromises our personal values. And once you can get in that conversation, you can start to say, if it feels wrong, tell that table that you won't serve them anymore. And you have that power, you have that control, and nothing should ever compromise you. You can, again, see that light light up and going, I never realized I had a say in how I felt. That's novel. That's new. And hopefully they take that back and they build the confidence. But it's, as you say, it's just the way that things have been done. If you're going to get your bottom touched, it's going to happen in hospitality. But it doesn't mean that that's right and that should be accepted. And the sooner that we start standing up and saying, no, this is unacceptable, I'm not prepared to be spoken to or be touched or whatever it might be. I don't like your behavior. It's making me feel uncomfortable. And as a result, this is what we're going to do as a business. And knowing that that business has your back, I think, which is to your point, Scott, is that you are protected and you have that psychological safety. Then, you know, you talk about those turnover rates and you talk about people, why suddenly leave your organization without saying anything? It's because they're stifled and they're silent and they can't talk. That's really, really interesting. Really interesting point. There's a couple of questions on here with regards to making mistakes. So I'd like to open this one up to Michelle. I'm going to try and summarize these because there are two or three. I find myself making simple mistakes. These minor mistakes become major in my head and can sometimes cause me to question myself. Am I actually any good at my job? At your level, do you have any experience of this? And if so, what do you make yourself realize? Actually, it's not that bad and I can learn from this. This is one comment, but there are multiple comments about that fear of making mistakes and how might that be reflected on them. So, Michelle, over to you. I think you find it a lot with people. So I, the comment is there's a lot of people sitting there thinking there was I watched a listened, not watched, listened to a podcast a few years ago with Emma Thompson on it. And she talked about the inner dialogue and she called it shit FM, you know, and that conversation that's going on. And you know, it's never joyous. It's never going, Woo, you got this. Brilliant. Well done. You know, it's always. And I think what my advice to people is, is make the inner voice like a, a caricature. I always think humor is a good way to break anxiety when used correctly, especially if you can use it on yourself. So make the voices in your head a, a caricature and want to look after that little version of yourself because that's just calling out for recognition, I am okay, safety again, and looking at them and you have to, every time, there's a flip of everything. And, and once you understand that that's slightly different, that it isn't you, that it is a thought, it isn't the whole of you, it is a thought you are having, then it doesn't start controlling you, you start controlling it. And you then can flip your mindset to, it's posing a question, is this factually correct or not? Is it my opinion? How can I use my mindset to change it? A key one I use with teams that they end up going into blame of themselves. But if we actually ask a few questions and step forward a bit, it's come from frustration. So it's come from frustration from themselves. And then I say, how can we flip that frustration into determination? Because the frustration gets stronger. And then in the end, somehow you bounce back on yourself and think it's you. And to the small mistakes, it's a flip again. I don't get better without mistakes. If I want to stay the same, yeah, I make no mistakes. If I want to keep going on the path, 
jiggling along, you know, I don't make any mistakes. Then mistakes are um, the fuel of me to be able to move forward. And so it's looking at being kinder with yourself. It's understanding that it's a thought, not you. Yeah. It's working out how can you flip this mindset and it's working out how you use that mindset that it is an opportunity for you. I think sometimes people confuse optimism, like everything's got to be bright and breezy. Sometimes you have to face the brutal facts, but it's that Jim Collins thing with the unwavering faith that I will move forward. And and so sometimes these thoughts aren't always a negative. Sometimes they're the, the reality going, that is true. And I'm going to use that. And it is not me as a whole person. It is a moment in time of a thought. I couldn't agree more with that. You know, we say being ambitious is kind of a, it can be a blessing, but it can also be a curse. And when I see people complain about making mistakes and we're always critics at the end of the day, you know, and I believe that's the biggest tool and that mistake represents movement. Like any movement, it's powerful. So you just got to embrace a mistake, learn from it and do it again and do it again, but just keep moving. Like you say, that little path. And then the the life will put this cosmic gifts in front of you as long as you you keep moving. So I love what you said. Thank you. There's one more piece of advice I would say to people. Will this worry you in five years' time? Ask that question. Will this worry you in five years' time? If it's not going to worry you in five years' time, let it go. Let it go. I will sing the song to you later. If it is going to worry you in five years' time, give it some attention. Give it some attention. But you have to start having, a, not that we would think I was mad, but you have to have multiple conversations with yourself and put yourself in different situations to be able to question yourself. Okay. It's so interesting because I used to be that person who was terrified of mistakes. And when you become terrified of your own mistakes, you naturally make more mistakes. You become anxious. You overthink it. You know, Lara used cosmic or you know serendipity. Unfortunately, if you start to, if your brain tells you it's going to go wrong, it will go wrong, and then you'll wallow in that because it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I found that works for me really well is one learning to turn off that internal monologue from time to time and going. It is what it is. Like dial down shit FM, turn it on to like mute mode or white noise and just go with that flow, which isn't easier said than done. This isn't something that you wake up one morning and go, okay, I'm just going to stop thinking because someone's told me this is a skill. This is something you have to learn. You have to practice. You have to develop over a period of time and a period of years, but also owning mistakes and understanding that it is all right to make mistakes. I've made some absolute howlers. And I think to myself in that moment, I go, God, this feels really fucking shit, but this is a learning opportunity. I'm going to grow from this and all right, one step at a time and go from there. What's your thoughts, Jim, Scott? For one, every time I hear Michelle talk about this kind of stuff, I immediately feel better about myself and all the mistakes that I've probably made. But, you know, I think that I agree with, that whole development, whether it's learning how to be, serve tables, learning how to make cocktails, learning how to manage people. I mean, you have to struggle through it one way or another. And I mean, it's like we've all said, it's easier said than done. But I think the combination of understanding that yourself, along with have, hopefully working for an employer that believes in that that's okay. And that, you know, that supports people through that is, I think, a big part of where there's opportunity for the industry as a whole to evolve, right? I mean, again, going back to the thin margins conversation, I've had lots of 
people that I worked with or worked for in management that would absolutely lose their mind if a staff member made a mistake because that's money, right? So I think there has to be a bit of a change in our industry around how we support people in order to have that, you know, struggle through things. Yeah, there's a really good scene in, I was lucky enough to see the first episode of Boiling Point in the series before it's, it's come out, so they got shared. And there's a really cool scene in there where there is a mistake that's made by a front of house member. And the way that the general manager deals with it is so class. Like it takes, there's a lesson to be learned there, I think, in terms of going, this happened. Let's just like, yeah, let's have a laugh about it. You know, it's no one, no one's, unfortunately, no one's seriously injured. You know, so it's, it's fine. Just don't do it again. And yeah. Scott, did you have anything on that point? There's one last question after this. So, Yeah, sure. I, I mean, my thing on this is don't be scared to feel uncomfortable because feeling uncomfortable is good, right? It means you're doing something different. It means you're putting yourself out of your comfort zone and you're pushing yourself. So use that as a superpower. And I think nine-tenths of confidence is knowledge and learn, research, listen, absorb, find people around you who are ahead of you on the journey, who have knowledge, who you can turn to for advice, who can give you a kick if you need a kick and develop confidence because confidence can be developed. And a lot of it is through knowledge. If you're one of those people who naturally introverts or find it uneasy, find it uncomfortable, you have to find a way to go through it and be uncomfortable because being uncomfortable is good. That would be my big thing in there. And, you know, amazing how much confidence can make a difference to how you would go about things. And I'm with a lot of the guys who said this is some of the best learnings I've ever made have been from mistakes. If you aren't working with people who allow you to make mistakes, and more importantly, when you've made those mistakes, help you understand why you aren't working for the right people. That's simple. And I've been very lucky to have people who've let me make mistakes. But, you know, one of the other things that was really important is I was never scared to hold my hand up because I never feared retribution. I never feared what was going to happen. I never feared I was going to lose my job because I always did it within with an intent. So I could always say why I made the mistake and I could talk through the process of why I did it. And at least then people can understand your logic and help you understand where you went wrong in that journey. For me, yeah, never fear mistakes. If you have to fear mistakes, go find someone else who'll help you thrive from from those mistakes because that's what's going to make you and break you as you develop through the through the ladder and through your career. So interesting, isn't it? And there's probably a, a follow-on question from that, which is how do you keep perspective in an environment that rips perspective away from you? You know, if you're front of house, you're used to being on display, on show, on in character mode. If you're back of house, you're used to having a windowless box that you come into every day. That becomes your reality within a very, very short period of time. So what can people do in order to keep that perspective to know that mistakes do happen and to own those mistakes or to understand what the difference between right and wrong is when it comes down to cultural behavior? I think a lot can be done in briefings and leaders, leaders sharing their mistakes and knowing that that anyone who's successful will happily share the their embarrassing, their moments you look back on and think, God, how did I do that? Though it was the piece that shaped you in the new direction you needed to go to. So I think if we're in this day in, day out, using their moments of briefings to be able to not just share the information, the inspiration, that isn't always the glory moments. It's the moments that were tough as well. And we did it before and we learned from it and we got better collectively because this isn't an individual game. It's a team effort and we've got your back. 
I think that that messaging repeated sort of just puts people at ease. That's it. It's about sharing the behind the scenes, isn't it? That's what people want to see. That's what people get inspired by. I believe the soul is smoking mirrors when you're only showing the success. How about all the failures and all the layers that built you into to where you're at today? So I totally agree with that. Beautiful point. I think also okay. there was an Insta story post by Adam Byatt at Trinity the other day, and they were doing like a, a recipe development. They went through it all. And it was all exciting. I'm watching the video thinking, is this great? And the final clip was, it didn't make it. Oh, I love and that. never did they show that. It I went, love- it didn't make it. It failed. And I thought, oh, that is a video that needs to go out. We didn't make it. It failed. And that's the point of it. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, I think we trick ourselves in this modern world where we see people and how successful and how great they are, but you don't actually see the hundred times it's gone wrong or the failures or the mistakes or the, you know, getting caught in predicaments that at the time they just didn't know the way out of, but they've, they've got there. And that's the graft. And that's the stuff that people need to be more aware of because it's perfectly normal. It's perfectly okay. And as Scott says, if you're in an organization or if you're in an area that actually makes you feel scared of making those mistakes, then there's probably a good time to get out. As a final question, one that we had come through fairly recently, which was someone had just started working for a new organization. And unfortunately, it took a good sort of three, four, five months for them to understand what the culture was like versus what they'd been told the culture was. And we see that a lot, especially when we're working with the students across catering colleges. And they ask us, how can you tell very, very quickly or as soon as possible, whether or not the culture of an organization is the culture that you would like to work in, whether that's at interview stage or during your first week, what sort of signs should you be looking out for from your experiences? Try before you buy. Don't be scared of doing a trial shift. Don't be scared of going to speak to people. Don't be scared of going in after the interview to see and chat to the barman and do all of that and do your diligence because when the lights are off and the microphone's turned off, the crew behind the camera will tell you what's really going on. If they ask you to do a trial shift, do it. If they're not going to pay you, who cares? Because it's going to save a lot of heartache doing a free shift somewhere if you realize it's not good enough and speak to people who work there when you go in and the managers out around and all the rest. And if the managers do see you, so what you're doing your research, that should be a good thing, right? So my thing would be try before you buy. Exactly. And it's pretty straightforward as well. You go in a kitchen, you see what they look like, you see what the front of house looks like as well. You straight away, you can tell how unhealthy these people are. You know, I always say admission and awards shouldn't be given if the world being, if, if the same experience isn't delivered at the back of the house. Get one Michelin man undercover, go to do a trial shift. That, all you need is one day to really get the view of how that restaurant runs. And like you say, absolute diligence before you start. All about I, I love that. I love that. Michelin should listen to that. That is game changing, Lara. I think you should use your platforms to talk about that because that is that is awesome. Make it happen. Because I think it's uniform is a key indicator whether people really get care because it'll be initial cost cutting. So if staff are having to get their own uniform or chefs are looking, you just know there's a cost cutting issue here because they it, something's being cut on the PL over people having been looked after to feel proud about that what they work in. And I always look when if I'm getting, you know, someone says, well, you come in and we'd like to, I suppose, for me to work with them. I'm always looking at what the clothes and just seeing do they get looked after. I'd also say with the best intentions of a company culture, the culture is run by that manager. 
in that team. And so even with the greatest company aspirations, I'd say look for who's looking after you and see if they're delivering on what the company is saying. Because if that person isn't delivering on it, who's going to be looking after you? You ain't getting that company culture. You are getting that manager's culture. And so it is being a bit of an investigator and finding out. And that person doesn't have to be like you. It's always good to be around it, but they should be having the behaviours that is what the company is saying we're trying to achieve. That's quite interesting. Yeah, you're right. So there's there's two types of cultures here, or, or there's almost three types of cultures, right? You have the company culture, the culture the company believes that should be setting across multiple sites, multiple areas of the business. You then have the culture that your manager and the senior leadership team within that organization are setting by their behaviors, by their actions, by the way that they treat and talk to staff. Then you've got your team culture. So you could have, for example, a great company culture, a terrible managerial culture, and then even worse, team culture, because they're fighting against the managers and that culture is just incredibly toxic and bad. Yeah. So you have to feel your way around that. Some of that's not necessarily, you know, I always talk about how you can look at staff toilets. If you need to go to the toilet, irrespective of whether you work for that organization or not, go to the staff toilet. Because I've been in some hideous toilets, like toilets where you can't even turn around. There's not enough toilet roll. There's no feminine hygiene products. Hasn't been cleaned in God knows when. Now, if that's the toilet that you're team who are doing 12 14 15 hour shifts have to use and it's that only little respite from the day and it looks like that there's something wrong there from a company level and potentially a managerial level that needs looking at but and those are some of the obvious signs but sometimes you feel it you know you feel feel people just spend a bit of time not waiting to respond but looking at what they're saying how they're moving what their eye contact's like and that will give you a good indication Jim, if they look at you, because sometimes they'll be in the office doing their paperwork. Did they come and say hello? Yeah. Are you okay? Yeah. Do I know your name? I'm not staying unless that's happening. Well, and Chris, there's there's so much good dialogue here, right? I mean, everything from go sit at the bar and just see what the bartender says about working there the day before you're supposed to start to the washroom thing. I mean, the staff area conversation is something that, I've always been really passionate about this. And it used to drive me crazy when I was in operations. We once had this one location that I was working as a part of that we started to notice that, and this is a true story. We started to notice that there was the employee retention started, the turnover, people were quitting. It wasn't good. It wasn't going well. Same management team, same restaurant, just as busy. Everything from an operational perspective looked like things were going well. But staff started to quit, like long-term staff that we didn't expect to ever leave. All of a sudden, they're starting to move on. And they just were saying things like, it just, you know, if you do an exit interview, they're saying things like, it just doesn't feel right anymore. It's just not the same as it used to be and things like that. We started to dig into what was happening. And actually, the manager of the restaurant, in an effort to save money, had actually gone to the janitorial company and said, I want you to basically draw a line on the floor and said, don't worry about cleaning anything beyond this line. And the only things beyond that line were lockers, washroom, a staff table, all of that type of stuff. He said, our staff will take care of that. And what do you think it was costing a month to clean the extra 200 square feet of space? I mean, who knows, $100 maybe? But he was looking at all these different ways to try to save money to make the restaurant more profitable. And really what he was telling his team was, we don't care about you. 
And people literally, as soon as someone said that your end of shift duty is to clean that bathroom, they went, no. Wow. There's certain things like that staff area analogy that really represent how much the management care about people and are interested in protecting their people from stress and anxiety and burnout and all these different things that exist in our industry. So the staff area is an interesting element though. I would challenge that from working in central London, architecturally in Soho, that ain't happening. It doesn't, the space isn't there. Mm. And so the responsibilities on the management, but the building and the environment is not set up. And so owning companies and, you know, owners are buying spaces for location for business. And even the head office, there's going to be a lot of people who have, who cannot impact that cleanliness, fine. But in terms of space, it doesn't exist if we want to be in SOHO, you know, which a lot of people want to be in. Mm -hmm. That space does not exist to be able to create it for the teams. And so that's the challenge as well. Where do you, is ethics of a business choice? This is something I've come across a lot. You know, I do pop-up events. So we always had to rent sort of old spaces and they didn't have a particular big area for the staff. And even the first one, I had to put them in small spaces. And then I realised, well, this is not how it has to go. You know, it has to be, we have to have equilibrium as big as the ones for the guests because they're going to deliver, you're supporting your dream here, you know. So it's something that if the location doesn't offer that, then like you say, the ethos of the company is not right because that has to be a must in the business plan. You have to tie that in. So, yeah, it's very frustrating when, you, when you're not prioritising the team. Do you know what, though? This, the worst staff room and toilets I ever worked in was a business that had the best culture I've ever worked in. Michelle is going to, she knows already what's coming here, but we ran a, a venue in Dubai. We won't say what it was, but the staff room and the staff facilities were disgusting. There was nothing we could do about it. There were shared services. We couldn't fix it. It was grim. Honestly, I can't describe it on air what what it was like, but the culture in that place, because we looked after our people, we explained to them, we did everything else right. The staff food was there. It was an inner, it was in abundance. We we looked after them, we cared for them, we did, we treated them. It Dubai is very different, right? You shouldn't say in hospitality we work with family. There we worked with family because it's the family you have, because you're all abroad on a little island and you're all away from each other. And we cared for them like proper people and it just goes to show you're right you're absolutely right Chris and I agree with your toilets and staff rooms and I spent years in hotels campaigning for better back of house environments but sometimes it's when that can't be delivered if you talk to your people and you treat them the right way you have the right culture in place you respect them you listen to them and you talk to them we had a thing called quality circle we used to ask them every week one positive and one improvement about the business. And we used to act on the improvements and we used to tell them if we couldn't deal with it, why? But we used to do more than we didn't. So at least they saw things moving. So when the toilets were grim, it didn't make a difference because they knew we were doing our best for them. So I think there's always a way around things that aren't right by doing other things very, very right and compensating and and being open and honest with your team. And yeah. Someday over a beer, I'll show you what that looks like. We can have a laugh about this conversation, but yeah, best culture, worst staff room. Thank you very much. So, I mean, there are more questions, but I'm conscious of time. And I know that we all have important work in terms of changing cultures and leadership and improving mental health in our sector. 
So I'm going to draw a line under it there, but hopefully everyone who's listening has enjoyed this. Any key takeaways or any key bits of information before you go? So Michelle? What, that I've learned today? Yeah, that you'd like to impart onto listeners, whether it's something we've covered or we haven't. Is there anything that you would like to say to inspire or any nuggets that you'd like to leave as takeaways? People are wonderful and they want to be seen in different ways. And as leaders, we need to realise that everyone's individual and everyone has a, a magical moment. It's right people in the right places. And invest in your leaders so they can look after your people because that will look after your business. Thank you. Lara? Well, like Scott said, you know, make yourself uncomfortable, put yourself in uncomfortable situations to that comfort zone. And I always say, you know, there might be a lot of darkness in that path, but darkness always leads you to brightness. As long as you do it with care, with passion and love and hard work, there's always going to be a true success at the end of that. And again, thank you all for sharing your stories while you've inspired me. Thanks, Lara. Jim? Thanks for the opportunity to join the group as the, again, as the one on the other side of the pond here. But, you know, this stuff always just gets me really excited. I mean, I'm on a mission to do everything I can to try to leave the industry better than we found it. And I think, you know, all of this type of discussion about how to take better care of people, whether it's the washroom or the culture or the safety of the environment that they work in, I think, you know, just the more we can think differently and try to change our industry, the better. That's up to you for leading the charge. Now, us, us, we're custodians until we pass it on to the next lot of more inspired individuals to take this on for us. Scott? I know everyone on this call, right? I think to anyone who's sitting there and anyone who's thinking this industry, people in the industry don't care about people, this call should show people that that's not the case and we're not the only ones. And I think my final thing is care. Care about yourself, care about others. And this world is going to be a better place. So take that back to your workplace today and say, how can I do better for me? How can I do better for my people? And you're going to have a much better business at the end of it. If I was holding a mic, I'd drop it now and turn the recording off. I feel up like his mum. (laughs) I got all proud of him. That's only because I went last. Look at what he's become. Look at him. (laughs) What a modest man. What a modest man. Guys, thank you ever so much for, for joining me. I think we should probably do this again and we should have different topics that we hit, right? You know, whether it's on profitable businesses, whether it's starting a career in hospitality for the first time and what what to expect coming maybe from another industry. But if you're up for that, we'll make this a regular thing. Right, guys, signing off from this week's episode. Thanks ever so much. And I'll speak to you all again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. See you later. It's such a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.